Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Darts and Letters. I'm Ren, a producer here on the show. We have reached the last day of our week of episodes exploring right-wing politics from left perspectives. This is just one of our themed weeks of programming. We've been showcasing some of our favorite past episodes of the show all summer with a different theme every week. And we'll be launching brand new episodes of Darts and Letters right here on the New Books Network starting later this month. If you like what you've heard, stay tuned for the new episodes. And if you're new, thank you for listening and do check out our previous weeks of summer highlights. Today, we're bringing you one of the very first episodes of Darts and Letters from way back in 2020. It's the beginning of one of the major lines of questioning that we follow on this show, examining the political philosophies of radical right-wing movements. This one takes us on a journey into the world of evangelical right-wingers. The idea of Christian nationalism and spiritual warfare can seem far-fetched to the secular population, but far-right evangelicals are a political force to be reckoned with. In this episode, our host Gordon Kaddick explores evangelism from multiple angles. Enjoy this deep dive into Pew politics. Over to you, Gordon. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a show about intellectuals and the work that they do. But it's not just for the Ivy crowd. It's for everybody. Even people who hack darts and people who wouldn't be caught dead with a New Yorker tote bag. Last week, we talked about how Trumpism isn't going away. But let's dig a little bit deeper than that. What are its constituent parts? We've already talked about the white working class. There's not much more to say about this. I think it's pretty obvious what I think. This is a generation of people who have had their real wages stagnate and their lifespans shrink, all the while being talked down to by the expert chattering class. A vote for Trump was a big fuck you right back at them. And you torque that up with racist demagoguery. Yeah, you've got Trumpism there. But where's the intellectualism? This is a show about intellectuals, after all. Well, okay, you've got your standard issue, libertarian right-wing ghouls. You know, people at the Cato Institute or the Heritage Foundation. These people are influential, no doubt, especially in policy circles. But their ideas aren't actually broadly popular. People don't exactly go around self-identifying as Hayekians. This stuff is usually sneaked in through the back door, while they've got you frothing at the mouth over some cultural issue. So what other ideas are really driving Trumpism and the Republican Party more broadly? Well, ask yourself, who exactly is the real political base? It's the evangelicals. 76% of evangelicals voted for Trump. And when we talk about evangelicals, we're talking about like 100 million people. This is almost a third of the country. Donald Trump was good to them, and they were good to Trump. Just a few days before the election, about 30 evangelical leaders gathered online to pray for Donald Trump. If you haven't, make sure you get to that voting booth. You go in and you vote tomorrow. And let's pray our way through. We're asking everyone to Worst pray Zoom and meeting for the ever. Next two days. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
They didn't get the results they wanted, of course, but they've stuck by him. And us secular lefties, we've had a great amount of fun relishing in their defeat. You've seen the videos online, and you've probably joined in on the mockery. You know, Kenneth Copeland's maniacal cackling. <laughs> the media said Joe Biden's president. Ha 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 Paula White doing her thing. Angelic reinforcement, angelic reinforcement. Vika hata anda ata ora batarata anda ek ek manda rasata. For I hear the sound of victory. I hear the sound of victory. And the remixes. The oh, the glorious I remixes. It's hilarious. But to be honest with you, I'm not laughing as much as I used to, because I've come to realize that they are really the ones that should be laughing at us. Because even if Trump lost, they won. They got everything they wanted. Three harsh, socially conservative Supreme Court justices, a Republican party that's totally captured to their radical agenda. They are a people that are focused, disciplined, organized, and it is clearly working. No matter your politics, you should actually be pretty impressed by what they've accomplished. What we're seeing now is a 50-plus year project come to fruition. The liberal secular media still doesn't understand who these people are and what they've been up to all this time. So you see a lot of this mocking, this dismissal. Other times, they talk about them in these kind of sanitized political science terms. You know, they're like a voting block. But it's not just a voting block. It is a radical political theology that is organizing itself to fundamentally remake society. Let's not go too far, though. Let's not give them more credit than they deserve. Most of these televangelists are not theologians, really. They're semi-literate hucksters. They're performers, and they're just serving up slop to the hogs. You want to see what these people are really like? Watch TV shows like Righteous Gemstones. I think that's a pretty good place to start. But I've learned that the silly televangelists are really just the front. The core of this is a kind of intellectual project. And when you read their books, you can find a coherent and clearly articulated political mission. That part's no joke, and that's what we're talking about today. Today, we take on evangelical political theology. You're going to learn about Christian nationalism, about spiritual warfare. This stuff ain't just the stuff of TV performers. On today's show, three ex-evangelicals come together to form our Pew Research Center. Bradley Onishi is pastor-turned-professor-turned-podcaster. Ben Shapiro calls him that religion professor, and indeed he is. Bradley takes on the quack intellectuals of the far right, no holds barred. Chrissy Stroop is emptying the pews. She tells us about her own journey from Jesus land to Twitter land and how she's now helping people turn away from abuse, trauma, 
homophobia, and purity culture. But first, Andre Gagné. Andre was saved. He became an evangelical pastor. And at 33, he went to university just because he wanted to learn a little bit more about the theology. But when he really dug into it, he didn't like what he saw. And so he left the church. But he'll take us back in. All that and more after the break. Stay tuned. You'll see the light and want to turn right back around and run for the darkness. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But like Ren said, we are coming back with regular weekly programming this September. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Search Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or go to dartsandletters.ca. Andre Gagné is a professor in the Department of Theological Studies at Concordia University in Montreal. But before that, he was an evangelical pastor. The young Andre was saved. It started with his aunt. One of the things that influenced me in terms of what she was saying is that she talked about the, the end times. She talked about the last days, the end times, and that uh, Jesus would return to take away with him those that had accepted him as their personal savior. This is the teaching that is called the rapture, the rapture of the church. This is a common belief in some evangelicals, uh, evangelical circles where when Jesus comes back, he will rapture those that have been born again. He will bring them up with all of them to be with him forever uh, in heaven. So she was saying, you know, if Jesus comes back and you're not ready or you haven't accepted Christ as your personal savior, then you're going to be left behind. And those that are left behind will experience a time of tribulation on earth where God's judgments will fall upon the inhabitants of the world because they have rejected Christ and they have rejected God. So, of course, you know, you come to this faith at this age being impressionable through a bit of fear. I was also raised Catholic and went to Mass and went to Sunday school and all of that. And I, I distinctly remember nothing ever clicking. It wasn't that I was inherently antagonistic. I was open to it, but I was uh, bored by it. I was restless. I, I never felt called by any of of what um, was put in front of me, even though I think I was impressionable and, and all of these things, it, it, I, I still don't really understand why it never clicked for me, but it, it does click for other people. It clicked for you. Maybe the fear piece is a big part of that because that wasn't a huge element of, of my upbringing. Is, is that what you think the big difference is? Or, or? I, I think that when you think about, especially some aspects of, evangelical traditions, especially groups like Pentecostals and, and Neo-Charismatics, is that their theology is narrative. It's a narrative theology. It is not a cerebral kind of dry 
the recital of, of things or doctrines that are boring. Yeah. You see, it's about life. It's about transformation. It's about finding purpose. It's about uh, relationship with God. So the strength of these groups, why people connect with these groups, is because it's narrative. Mm. It's narrative theology. It's theology that is inscribed in everyday life. It's telling stories. It's telling their stories. And you know this as a producer. People are much more interested in hearing about stories and what people are experiencing in their lives than hearing, you know, dry facts or certain systematic ideas, intellectual ideas that sometimes for people seem or sound dry. And when you go to these churches, uh, especially the neo-charismatic and Pentecostal churches, it's very animated. People worship and they participate in the worship. You know, the worship is embodied. It's about experiencing in your emotions, in your body, the presence of God. You go to these churches and they emphasize worship and music, and the music is a beat. You're not listening to an organ player. But it, you have, a, you know, guitar and, and you have a bass and you yeah. have a, a drums and you have contemporary instruments. You feel like you're in a concert, essentially. So it's all this experiential dimension that really, really makes it stand out, especially for these types of neo-charismatic Pentecostal evangelicals. I think you're, you're absolutely right. that The picture that you're painting for me couldn't be more different than the dry, uh, you know, Aquinas said this, and yeah. here's the catechism yeah. of yada yada. And I want to go back to, to 12-year-old Andre for a bit. So you you go through this personal conversion. You talk about finding a community. What was that community and the kind of experiential thing for you? Like what would have that early, those early days in that church looked like for you? Yeah, essentially, uh, my aunt for a couple of years uh, invited me to attend her church. This was a non-denominational church, small community of of believers. I, I used to live far away from my aunt, so I had to take you know the bus and everything. It it, it took me like two hours wow. just to get to her place. That's commitment. You're a true believer there. Yeah, that's it. And you feel like you're part of something. You know, people are very accommodating in the sense that they welcome you. Uh, they embrace you and uh, and you know you you listen to sermons and and for me, what was really interesting was reading the Bible and trying to understand what this is, uh, what this text was about. So I was very much attracted very early on with studying uh, the Bible, studying all of these doctrines of the last days. I, I was like in my teenage years, so and eventually, I felt drawn to to teach that, even at a, an early age, to share the discoveries that I have made by my own personal study of, of the Bible. And what I realized is that there are a lot of people that were in the churches that I was attending that didn't know the Bible as well as I did. <laughs> and I was like, starting and beginning mm. and uh, because they were so focused on the experiential that they were reading the bible devotionally i was reading it to study it and understand it so that you know of course i was reading it also devotionally but i was i was i don't know from the start kind of going a little further 
listening to teaching tapes and all sorts of stuff, getting books that were more a bit more in-depth. And that le led me eventually to contemplate uh, what they call the ministry, because I, I like communicating what I'm discovering. And, and people seem to respond positively to what I'm saying. Maybe, quote-unquote, God is calling me to... to to work uh, as a, a pastor or a teacher in those circles. So I started going to a Bible college in the denomination that I was part of. And, and very, very quickly, uh, I was offered possibilities to assist pastors in various churches and eventually became a pastor myself. I've been watching some of these evangelical pastors and these folks praying for Trump and I thought I was going to see a lot of hatred, you know, like um, these enemies want to tear down our our country, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And there is some of that. But a lot of that was just like this sense of like, oh, love. We love each other. We love our community. We love our our country. And, th and that surprised me. Was that the kind of thing that you were preaching at, at a young age? You always preach to preserve the flock from being influenced by the world outside the uh, church. Of course, there's love, but it's love of, you know, the people in the church. Yeah, It's love for people outside the church too, but in the sense that we have to love them so that we're going to preach the gospel to them yeah. so that they will be saved. You see? So it's love in terms of conversion. So it's that, and especially in terms of that that when I was a youth pastor, is really present, you know, helping these kids to to maintain their Christian life and their Christian witness in the midst of a secular world that is not really open to faith or their their brand of faith. Huh? So of course, the world is seen. You you love the world because you have to convert it, but it's seen also as an enemy of your faith. Right. So it's it's. You know, you're, you're always like in tension with that. You're always preaching, okay, we have to love the world, we have to go outside, we have to help the needy. But even helping the needy is because by helping the needy, you're going to be a good witness of Christ and you might influence them to become Christians. The outside world is still seen as an enemy. Mm -hmm. And if it feels like it, it is opposing God's will in society, you know, you're hearing preachers after the the feet of trump that are calling for uh, their political enemies to be smitten by god in a sense eh? so so you're going to have imprecatory prayers against your mm -hmm. political enemies that that you're going to see also because it's right. a spiritual battle my sensibilities are 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 so much more uh, pluralist than this so I, I find it difficult to understand, and I'm, help, I'm wondering if you can help me understand it. Why did you and these communities generally see the outside world as a threat, as a place that was unsafe for believers? Because that's what the Bible, or at least that's the reading that they have of the Bible. When the Bible says that the entire world is under the influence of the evil one, that's a verse in the Bible. So the reason why... Christians that are attached, first of all, because the Bible is their central text, it's because they, they adopt 
a what they call a biblical worldview of reality for them. You see, so the reality is that in the world there is a dualistic conflict between good and evil, and you have to be on the right side of the battle. And it is those that are, you know, that have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior that are on the right side. But there's an enemy, there's the devil and his demons that are trying to influence individuals away from the Christian message and keep people blinded from that. So it's not, it's almost like normal for them to, to think in those terms. And this is what people don't understand. We live in, in pluralist uh, societies where people can share different views and, and pluralism is seen as, as a positive thing. For these groups, if, if you adopt a pluralistic perspective, you're saying in a sense that there's more than one way to God, you see? And for them, that's not possible. And what did you think at the time? So before you, you end up in university and start to, to raise some questions when you were a pastor, were you fully on board this particular worldview? Were there cracks? Were, were there things that you didn't sign up for? There were cracks. Uh, and I felt that a lot of my, you know, the leaders in my denomination were not able to answer the questions that I had. So university kind of gave me those answers, like that there is no definite answer, that the Bible, there are many theologies. But yes, there were cracks. When, when I left the assistant pastorate, because I, I, I had problems with the way that in the church, some spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues and other things, were going on in the church. Like, there was no order. I was reading things in the Bible that did not correspond to the way it was practiced in the church. Mm. And I tried to talk to the pastor about that at the time, and the pastor said, no, 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 you know. And he didn't really kind of care about what the Bible was actually saying, how things should be managed in the church in terms of spiritual gifts. So that, that forced me to kind of leave. And I had a different perspective on what, you know, the, uh, my understanding of salvation when I, when I left. And later on, it was that too. It was the question that when I was my own, like I was in charge of my own church, I, I still had questions that my denomination was not uh, adequately able to answer. And that led me to turn to the university. What, what question do you mean? Oh, all sorts of questions about like tensions in the Bible. Like for, for, for a lot of evangelicals, the Bible is, uh, is inerrant, at least in the context that I was at the time. Our denomination was just saying, you know, there's no errors in the Bible. There's no inconsistencies. There's no, there's no problems. The, the Bible is fully inspired and uh, without error. And I was, I was encountering problems of coherency in the biblical text. So you can't answer that just by saying, you know, there's no errors. You have to explain why there are incoherencies, why there are tensions, why. And, of course, the university, uh, going to university, doing biblical studies, learning about the original languages in which the, the biblical texts were written, which I did not know before that. 
I was just relying on my French or English translations. Now, when you read, you know, the Bible in its original language, in Greek, and Biblical Greek, Biblical Hebrew, Aramaic, it kind of opens you up with, to, you know, the idea of the complexity of even translating uh, the text uh -huh. into our modern languages. Because we have no original writings of the Bible. We only have copies of copies of copies of copies of texts. And as these texts were recopied throughout time, uh, there, were, there were errors that were, were made in the recopying of texts. These are called variants. It might help if you have an example, like actually like a contradiction within, like one, one side, one page says this, another side says this, yeah. or, or, or a mistake. Or, or, or sometimes you're, there's things that are attributed to Jesus. He says a specific thing, and then you have another series of manuscripts that he doesn't say that, that seem to correct at one point, there's a story uh, in one of the Gospels where uh, someone is asking Jesus, uh, you know, if, if Jesus can heal him. In most of the Bibles, it says Jesus having compassion on him, he said, be healed. But you have other manuscripts, other ancient manuscripts that say, you know, Jesus filled with anger hmm. told him, be healed. And you realize that scribes recopying manuscripts through time, when they encountered Jesus being angry, they had a problem with that. So they just corrected the manuscript. And, but you have hundreds of examples like that in, in the Bible and in the New Testament, like literally hundreds of that. And you have scholars that have dedicated their lives to, to studying that. A lot of the mainstream people, like people that read the Bible in churches, they're not aware of these things. Mm. And of course, the church is not necessarily the place to teach that because this is very advanced. And, but, but at least if, I don't know, people, someone in the congregation has these types of questions, there should be answers provided by the leaders of these churches, but often the leaders of, of many of these churches, not all, but many of these churches, they, they don't even have the theological training necessary to be able to, to kind of bring about these nuanced answers. They're not really intellectuals. It doesn't sound like they really want to, to no, dig deep no, and ask these questions at all. That's it. They're, they're scared, you know, it, it's going to affect the faith of my of my congregation, if I address this, these issues, and it will. And it's okay, in a sense, maybe people need to have a more, come to grips intellectually with the issues of uh, their traditional scripture, right. that it is not necessarily what they think it is. Doesn't mean that you, you have to abandon faith, but maybe your, your faith has to kind of mature or, or take a different approach to these questions, uh, faith remains faith. You see, if, if, if you have to prove everything, then it's not faith. Mm. So when you enter university, I think this is so interesting, if I understand you correctly, you're looking to essentially reconcile or explain some of the inconsistencies you're seeing? Like, like you were still a believer. You weren't there to like... Yeah, at first, yeah. 
yeah. at first, yeah. Like for me, I'm going there in fact to gain knowledge, but at the same time, I think at the time that I know the Bible more than my professors. <laughs> you see, when I arrive there, I kind of, I'm a bit, you know, arrogant in the sense that I think I know this stuff more than them. But then I realize I don't. <laughs> you see, these people are really like cognizant of this stuff. They know the languages. They know how the Bible was constituted. They talk about literary genres and, right. you know, historical context, which I I had no idea what they were talking about. I, I had to really, really swallow my pill because they're presenting you with documented and researched and well-argued perspectives. Uh, you mean the professors that, at that school? That kind of just like tells you, no, this this mm. is not working. And you go through, you know, when when you're there, you go through this kind of theological shock where, you know, you question everything that you believe and everything, you know, and uh, and then you kind of, things settle down, you see, and then you get a more kind of balanced view. In some cases, there's people that stay in the faith and continue being evangelicals, and they manage to navigate with their faith. In other cases, some people don't stay in, in the faith and still have a respect for for people that stay in, you know, believers. But for them, uh, there, there are too many tensions and too many problems to come to the point where they're going to bet their entire lives on this. Was there a moment for you, like when you're going through this theological shock was there a you know a figurative like straw that broke the camel's back that made you walk away or a question that wasn't answered that yeah. made things change for you the issue of theodicy theodicy is why is there evil in the world if there's a good god that's personal though that's very personal and people have all sorts of ways to explain the existence of a good god with the presence of unspeakable evil in the world. And that's what is called theodicy. For me, it's very hard to reconcile that idea. Mm. But, but that's very personal. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, the tremendous amount of suffering and the difficulty that our world is in in so many different domains, it just seems totally irreconcilable to me. How do believers reconcile that? What's the stock answer? If I went to you know, Wikipedia theodicy, it would say... There's several things. Often it could be the, the result of sin. There's suffering in the world because men and human beings are sinful. And uh, what you see in the world, the evil that you see in the world, is the consequences of that. So that's one answer. Another answer is that if you're a believer... And you go through suffering, maybe it's a way for God to get your attention, and yeah. he's chastising you. And there are biblical references to that. There's always like a biblical quote-unquote answer. <laughs> Another explanation is the supernatural dimension of evil, in the sense that in many of these circles, we, you know, people believe in a, a, a personal devil with actual demons. So the devil is given a certain latitude permitted by God in his sovereignty 
And a lot of the evil can originate supernaturally from that. But in the end, it still remains the fact, the problem still remains that God is sovereign all, over all things. Like if God is sovereign, he permits certain evil and sometimes inexplicable evil. You briefly just described to me what you see your role as a scholar um, of understanding these movements, explaining them to a general public. How did you arrive at that stance? Like, how did that become your ethos? This is very personal again, and I don't assume that all scholars have to think the way I think or even do what I do. Uh, this is very personal. It's personal kind of uh, realization for my own purpose. You get into, you do your, your, your degrees, you go through all the motions uh, to build yourself a career as a scholar, as an academic. You go to conferences, you write books, you write papers. And at one point, you kind of look at, at that and you get a job, you get a tenure track, you get tenure, you're there. You're, you're in the world that you had imagined yourself being and that, for which you worked <laughs> you know, a big part of your life. And then you look at, your, at yourself and what you're doing. And uh, I started realizing, you know, I'm writing papers and I'm writing books uh, that are really just for my small community of uh, researchers. You know, like I'm going to write an article. There's going to be, what, 10, 20 people are going to read my article? Like the, the outside world or the people that are not academics, in a sense, am I really contributing to something uh, to that world? Because, I, you know, as, as a, an academic, I'm paid by the state. So I, I started saying to myself, you know, as an academic paid by the state, I, I'm kind of accountable to that. I have to be someone that's engaged somehow to provide answers in my field with what people are experiencing in society, with uh, you know, problems in society, issues, social issues. What am I doing if I'm writing a very technical academic article with biblical language and Coptic and so on? And only 10 people are reading it. And the outside world is not even addressed. Or This is where I, I started really looking at how can I, as a scholar, still continue doing academic work? Because I still publish, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, I still publish articles that only 10 people read. And I, I still publish books that are geared towards academia. But I'm trying to publish also stuff. I'm trying to translate my research in understandable, manageable terms for the general public to be able to contribute to the public dialogue on, on religion and politics and society. One thing that strikes me about your story, and, and forgive me, this question is like too cute and too reaching, but we were just talking about this insular world that you were a part of, that you didn't see all of the suffering and all of the problems outside of that world. And then you entered into another community, a kind of secular 
clergy almost, priestly caste of scholars that is also insular. And in fact, more so because they aren't evangelical about it generally. And that parallel to me is so striking. And I wonder if you appreciated that, if in some sense you were inculcated or uh, vaccinated already from just entering yourself into another community that cloistered you from the outside world. I didn't want to say it. <laughs> you said it for me. <laughs> uh, you, you guessed it. Because you're not, that's it. You're, you're not leaving a, a closed community to be part of another closed community. You're not reaching anybody. You see, you're not, you're not connecting with the real world. And you're right. It, it can become a situation where academics are, are in their ivory towers and just speaking to themselves and nobody cares what they're saying outside. At the same time, we need academics. We need, like me as an academic, I need other academics to speak to me about my work and to, you know, I need, it's, it's good to be recognized by other academics for the work that you do. It kind of confirms that you're not like going astray or something. You need the academic community in a sense to support what you're doing. But at the same time, you still have to be, like you have to step outside. You have to step outside and, and address the real issues for which you're, you're, you're hired, in my sense. The university is supposed to have a public influence. That was Andre Gagné. He is one of the most astute observers of evangelical politics, and you can find those observations on Twitter. That's at Prof Gagné. Gagné is spelled G-A-G-N-E. We are also working to create a special bonus episode with Andre where he gives you the full intellectual history of evangelical political theology. Patreon subscribers will get it first, so go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Full disclosure, I invited Andre to be an academic advisor to this project, and he's lead of a grant that partly funds the show, though he has no control over the final edits. Chrissy Stroop is an author and activist. She started a bunch of viral hashtags, including hashtag empty the pews. That's about people leaving the church. And Chrissy did just that. She escaped from a place that she calls Jesus land. We're talking evangelical enclaves in rural Indiana. There's a verse in the Bible that enjoins Christians to be in the world and not of it. It's one that is often quoted and used to justify the creation of these sort of fundamentalist enclave communities. You have to protect yourself from the world, which is everyone outside the fundamentalist community and every institution that is not under the control of the fundamentalist community. And so this ecosystem, it consists of Christian schools, churches, parachurch organizations, or, you know, missionary organizations. Some of these span many different denominations as long as they kind of agree on the basics. So you have this whole separate information ecosystem, I and mean, it's also cultural production. We had Christian bookstores, right? They're, they're everywhere. We had plenty of this literature in, in my home, and I read a lot of it, but somehow I was also just given full access to other literature that was not from this ecosystem, and that gave me a window into just the fact that people lived differently. Um, but yeah, the world is everything that is outside, and you are taught to do things like quote unquote, friendship evangelism, 
which is very predatory. I mean, this whole idea that you just make friends with people who are unsaved in order to save them. Uh. But you have to come back and, you know, be with the community to be protected from all of that evil, all those evil influences out there. So if I'm in the world, what do they call the community that they live in? And, and how big is that? Do you know what I mean? Like, is this, are we talking about very small isolated enclaves or like full towns, full communities? No, generally it's, uh, it's a more abstract thing for most fundamentalists. Well, broadly defined, it doesn't mean just your church or your particular Christian community, but everyone that you recognize as really Christian. Mm. And we had a rather broad definition of that. I mean, it even included probably some Catholics, even though, you know, they can't be strong Christians, but some of them do have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I had a really eye-opening experience in my childhood. I was raised Catholic and I went to Catholic elementary schools. And it just so happened that I went to a Lutheran high school, partly because my mom wasn't really that strict about our Catholicism, and also because the school happened to just be the best school that was nearby, and that's why I went to it. But I remember one day, first class of Christian ethics class, the pastor slash teacher asked us about our um, denominations, you know, put up your hand if you are X, Y, Z. And, mm. and I think the first one he asked was Catholic. And I thought it was a funny question because I didn't realize, like, I didn't really understand pro that Protestantism was, like, everywhere. I thought, like, even though my world probably wasn't that insular, I still thought, like, Catholics are the vast, vast majority. And when I put up my hand and then I saw that there was only one other girl in the class with her hand up, I was, it, it, I, I'll never forget how surprised I felt and then how warped it was that I was surprised. I don't know, there's a certain irony there that, that you are kind of ecumenical, the evangelical movement is. I just thought that was, that was funny. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, I mean, that, and that's a really interesting story. And it's a, it's a great illustration of the kind of cognitive biases that we all have and that, you know, we have to really learn and, and train ourselves to, to avoid or try to avoid. I mean, I grew, growing up, and this is also, gonna, this is weird for an evangelical kid. I thought basically everyone went to college. I thought it was super weird if you didn't go to college because we were from these formally educated middle to upper class evangelical communities, you know? Um, and at the time only about 25% of Americans got a four-year degree or maybe even a two-year degree. I don't remember the statistics exactly. I'd have to look them up. But when I learned that as a teenager, I was just floored. I was like, well, everyone I know goes to college. <laughs> We don't notice water if you're a fish. Exactly. Right? <laughs> um, so just take one step back from college. What was your uh, like elementary school and high school? It was I read about one high school in particular that you you wrote about. What was it called? Remind me? Heritage Heritage yes. Christian School in yeah. Indianapolis. Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> Very Christian nationalist, mm -hmm. but also it, it it operates in this space of what I would call bad ecumenism, as in, you know, it's not ecumenism. In other words, there's a lot of different denominations represented there, probably mostly Baptists, but again, they downplay the emphasis on specific denomination, as long as we all believe in biblical inerrancy, and we might quibble again about you know, predestination, free will, and a number of other things, as long as we don't quibble about, clearly God hates abortion, clearly God hates gay sex and gay relationships, 
And clearly God wants everyone to vote Republican. Um, <laughs> and, and young earth creationism. Those are the, that's, that's the quadrilateral, I guess, that really makes you in the, in the true Christian club. Although if you are a Catholic or Orthodox, you'd probably have to jump through a lot more hoops to prove to these people that you really are in the, in the true Christian club. So what were the rituals like? What was the, the morning like? Or was there, um, was there mass? How, how did that work? So in elementary school, well, our mascot was, was the Eagles. And uh, we had this big picture of, of an eagle and with that Bible verse. And there were other Bible verses on the wall, uh, on walls in parts of the elementary school. One of them said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And we came to understand what that meant it, it pretty easily because it just it was everywhere. You learned that that meant that, you know, nations have to be obedient to God or they will be punished. And there are all these evil liberals out there killing babies and we have to stop them. Uh, and I mean, from the time you're like five or six years old, you're hearing about all this killing of babies and it must be stopped. I mean, it's really insidious. But how did it start in the morning? Well, we actually said three pledges, uh, Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag, then the Christian flag, and then the Bible in that order. And so it clearly sort of taught us that America is supposed to be a Christian nation. And, you know, the, the pledge to the American flag ends with uh, liberty and justice for all. The pledge to the Christian flag ends with, uh, I forget, gosh, I've kind of forgotten it over time, but it's, you know, something like that, but it's not for all, it's for all who believe. Mm. And so, you know, the progression of these pledges clearly shows that this is very much an anti-pluralist understanding of the nation and of our religion. We also had talent shows in elementary school, and I just got to tell you this really fast. I mean, you know, the the kind of campiness of them was was fun <laughs> and everything, but they always ended with a uh, an, a sing along of the people who performed in the talent show and the audience of Lee Greenwood's Christian Nationalist hit "God Bless the USA." Uh, you know, I'm proud to be an American, or at least I know I'm free, and right. I won't forget the men who died to give that right to me, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. <laughs> you must forgive me. I didn't even know there was a Christian flag. What's on it? Uh, it's a, I think it's a gold cross yeah. on a blue field on a white That's flag. But you know, it's been a while. Let's <laughs> just look it up. <laughs> Googling Christian flag. Oh, sorry. It's a red cross yeah. on a blue field in the upper left corner. And the rest of the flag is white. That's funny. It seems like almost a contradiction that one says, you know, the American, the country, and then says the, you know, the country of believers or something like, how do they, do they reconcile that? Or is the, is the aim like for one ultimately to supersede and because they just have a genuinely anti-pluralist worldview? It's a very anti-pluralist agenda. They are quite explicit about that. I mean, you are taught from a very early age uh, that the world would be a better place if everyone were a Christian. And that has to be Christian as we understand it, which is a very narrow understanding of Christian. And even if for us, it wasn't defined by denomination, as I told you, it was defined by by politics and certain broad theological tenets. And the idea was that nations should submit to God, the world should submit to to God's plan uh, for what it's supposed to be. And um, if you don't, you know, if you um, let gay people live their lives as they want, without doing any harm to you, somehow God's going to send, you know, floods or plagues or other kinds of punishments. <laughs> so when you're, you're a young person, what's your relationship to all this? Are you suspicious, um, kind of in the early days of being in the school? Like for me, 
my school was quite different, but we did have chapel every day and we did do Bible studies and I just checked out, you know, maybe it's just mm. like a, I was a bad student. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it was a way to defend myself from it, to just kind of not take it seriously. But as a young person, what was your kind of stance on it? So we had chapel once a week and um, I don't remember ever really questioning any of that until seventh grade in Colorado Springs when two things, uh, well, maybe three things. So one was that we had this very weird retreat day of like constant fear mongering and, and manipulation. When I was in seventh grade, they took the whole seventh grade class to some other facility and they divided up the boys and the girls, if I remember correctly. But what I remember very well is that we were taught, you know, not just the usual uh, alternative facts of sex ed, you know, condoms don't work, they fail all the time, condoms can't present, prevent AIDS, pregnancy, pregnancy, diseases, diseases, and so forth, and, and not just, you know, God hates premarital sex and whatever, but we were even taught extreme purity culture that you need to also be faithful to your future spouse because you should only ever be sure. sexually intimate with one person. And so if you do anything with a boyfriend or girlfriend now that you wouldn't do with uh, someone else's husband or wife, then you're already cheating on each other's future spouses. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. And then, you know, we had this kind of speech happening and then uh, we were all sort of enjoined to come down, take a purity pledge and a pen and go sit by ourselves quietly and reflect on, you know, whether we wanted to sign this purity pledge, well, wanted. Um, you know, I, I remember feeling like this was very manipulative and just feeling like there was something off about it. And I think that's really maybe the first time that I felt like that. Well, I, I shouldn't say the very first time, but it was it was a defining moment. I signed the pledge, but I remember thinking like, I understand we're not, it's, it's a sin to have sex before marriage, but I'm not sure what I think about this whole pledge thing and particularly this way of, of doing it, just, you know, manipulating us all into signing it and thinking, who knows if you'd even be expelled if you didn't sign it. So of course, yeah. after prayerful consideration, we we're all going to sign the goddamn pledge. <laughs> I wouldn't have said goddamn in my head at that time, but I was actually experimenting a little bit with using the cuss words that had been, and were still strictly banned in my <laughs> And then I also remember that in English class, I think it was also seventh grade, we got asked whether we wanted to participate, or maybe we had to participate in um, like an essay contest. And if our essays were, were good enough, then they would send them off to be considered at like the, you know, next level. We had to write some essay about, you know, America. And I wrote this just very rah-rah patriotism thing that I had internalized as, as a kid when I actually loved singing patriotic songs on the 4th of July, and I loved singing Christian songs. And I was very enthusiastic about this as a young kid. And of course, you're, you're how are you not going to trust your parents as a, as a kid, you know? So I, I, I wrote this thing about how, you know, everyone, literally everyone can exceed, succeed in America if they just work hard. And isn't that great? And um, my English teacher actually wrote in the margins, do you really believe this? And I was like, why wouldn't I? Isn't it true? Doesn't everyone believe it? And so that made me stop and think and realize, huh, maybe some of the things I've been taught are not entirely accurate. And then the other thing was I remember in seventh grade Bible class, we got a handout from some workbook. We hadn't, we weren't going through the whole workbook, I don't think, but we had certain materials that we were given. And it showed how after Noah's flood, Noah's three sons pop, repopulated 
the earth and they were sort of racial caricatures, right? So, uh -huh. you know, you have Shem, Ham and Japheth with arrows pointing to, you know, Shem populated Europe, Japheth populated Asia and Ham populated Africa. And, you know, this is taught in the context of the whole curse of Ham that Noah cursed his son Ham. And we didn't learn explicitly that this meant uh, African people were cursed to be slaved and they deserved to be slaved or that the curse of Ham turned Ham's skin black or anything. But the subtext was there. Hmm. And I remember that thinking too, like, mm, this is a little weird. So and by the time I was 16, back, at, back in Indianapolis, back at Heritage Christian School, because of some church politics gone bad, and I read the entire Bible through for myself, and I just started to be unable to, to, to put away these, these concerns that actually the Bible does seem to have some contradictions in it, and it doesn't seem to be 100% inerrant. What's the break for you? In some of your writing, you talk about like traveling and seeing, uh, I guess, exiting that enclave. Is, is, that, is that part of it? Oh, yeah. You know, actually getting to experience certain things outside the enclave was, was a big help. And we had some of that throughout my childhood. You know, my parents relatively closely monitored the things that we did, and we were not allowed to do certain things, but they were so loose that we were allowed to do community theater. So I was never 100% confined to that enclave, just maybe let's say 90% of the time I was in it. Dad, too, because of his professional music career and the freelancing stuff that he continued to do outside of the church, he always just had one foot in this kind of studio musician, sound engineer world, right? Like, I mean, my dad knows all kinds of people. He knows John Mellencamp's current drummer. He has those connections and you would get little glimpses of mm. what things were like out there. And in high school, I started to get to do some, some things that brought me together with public school kids. Like there were these summer programs at Indiana State University, summer honors programs where you would take courses and you could get college credit for them. And I remember just being absolutely you know, shocked that all these kids were like cussing and smoking all the time. And at the same time, fascinated. And I got to know people who were different from me and it definitely helped this whole process, but it created a lot of stress and cognitive dissonance as well. And I still have a couple of friends from that time that I am still in touch with. And I even got to go to an actual prom because my school did not have dances. Oh. You know? <laughs> we had um, banquets, right. Christmas bank banquet and junior, senior banquet. And they would have you know, it was nice to get a corsage and a tux and whatever, or a dress and get all dressed up. And they were very strict about, you know, particularly for the, for the girls. And of course, I was perceived as a boy and had not even come out to myself yet as queer, even though I always felt off and different somehow. And I just couldn't put my finger on how. But, you know, I, I kind of enjoyed the pageantry of the whole thing, but I did not enjoy that we did not have dancing because I already thought that was nonsense. You know, what, what is this ridiculous Christian man on? I don't see that in the Bible. So... <laughs> Uh, and, and the entertainment was lame, right? Like we literally had a Christian ventriloquist as the entertainment at one or two of the banquets <laughs> that, that I attended. Um, what, what is it like feeling, like when did you start to feel queer? When did you start to feel like there was something, was it the theater kids? I imagine they were much more liberal about like definitions of sex and gender than the people that you went to heritage Christian school with. Like, I'm wondering how that happens. Like in my school, you know, about 400 people, there was only one or two that were out. And I just think people like, 
I'm sure there were many more, but it wasn't even mm -hmm. in the kind of cognitive apparatus for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, no, it wasn't. And that's, I mean, that's exactly the right way to put it. Sometimes I, I've used the phrasing, I did not have the mental toolkit to simply did not to understand how I was different. There were, of course, other queer kids in my school, but no one was out. You, you couldn't be out. And I mean, we hardly ever even talked about homosexuality except to condemn it. They would, that would sometimes come up. I was teased about not conforming to, you know, a standard ideal of masculinity, but um, I could always fall back on, on one thing, that I was attracted to girls, right? So, you know, there was this one guy who would tease me about liking Alanis Morissette in high school. One of the popular kids loved to make fun of me because I was an Alanis Morissette fan. And um, I re it really did not click for me why a boy should not be a fan of an angry girl rocker who sings about terrible things that men do. <laughs> um, I mean, who doesn't like Alanis Morissette? I like Alanis Morissette. I mean, that's just... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she was one of my, she was one of my favorites. And this is the other yeah. thing. My family wasn't that strict about secular music. Mm. There were certain records, well, CDs by that time, but you know, that I, uh, and, and tapes that I maybe didn't tell them I had and just don't ask, don't tell. I mean, I remember getting Green Day's Dookie when I was... Uh, um, there was released in 1993 when I was out with um, a friend that I made at the public school in sixth grade and just not telling my parents that I had it and but not being so secretive when I played it because I just didn't want to actually see whether it would be a big deal or not. <laughs> <laughs> so the secular music, yeah, was a big influence on me. And yet this was a very long and, and, and drawn out process. But um yeah, feeling different though, just from early childhood, I just felt really sort of weird and different from the people around me. And I could never put my finger on why until much later. Because when I would get teased about not being masculine, I would just, you know, laugh it off and say, well, I'm comfortable in my masculinity. But that only ever meant exactly one thing. I like girls. And, and then in my 30s, though, I did also realize to myself that I can also be attracted to men. So I'm bisexual. But that happened actually after I realized that sexuality and gender operate independently uh -huh. and realized that all my life I'd been identifying with women, but I had no idea that I could be one. And it was like such a relief when I was like, oh, I don't have to be a man. That's great. <laughs> <You> <laughs> and the funny thing is when that happened, I think my religious deconstruction was finally complete too, because a lot of time for, for a long time that was going on underneath the surface, but I couldn't recognize it. And so I was just going around and around with these same issues about faith and whether I can believe in, I, I let go of a lot of beliefs intellectually, but I still had this fear of hell. It mm. lessened over time, but I was still very afraid of hell. And sometimes that fear would crop up, including in my early thirties when I figured this out. And then when I realized that I was queer and that I was transgender, it was like I stopped being afraid of hell. It's mm. like something just clicked. Chrissy, what do you think you would say to your younger self now or someone else who might be in a similar situation that you were in? I would say don't be afraid to explore your doubts. And if your faith is real, and I'm sure you know you've been trying very hard, right? Because I certainly was. Then God is big enough to handle it. And if it turns out that you can't believe in, in that kind of God, then trust yourself. You're right. 
you know, don't submit to a giant negging pickup artist in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of it put that way. That's funny. That's, I like that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I just wanted to transition a little bit to your own activism and engagement. And I think it wasn't really until I discovered your work and some of the people in your orbit that this idea of there being kind of an ex-evangelical movement. I'm not sure if movement's the right word. Is that the right word? I mean, I think that broadly speaking, we could say there's there's something of a movement. Some of us were actively trying to to build one for a while or, or an ex-evangelical community on Twitter. But, you know, as, as these things happened, there were so, ended up being some ugly smear campaigns against certain people and just, you know, recriminations and, and, and splits. I mean, the big one uh, in, in, the, in the Twitter community that we had built such as it was, well, I, I was the target of a pretty vicious smear campaign. In very loose terms though, there is still sort of a community and a movement out there. People who grew up in evangelicalism are, are talking about it and talking back to our parents and pastors and Christian school teachers. And there's not a lot of listening happening yet, but we're starting to change the media conversation a little bit. And I mean, that work continues, even if we don't have the Twitter visibility that we once had when hashtag campaigns could go pretty viral, Mm -hmm. like uh, expose Christian schools, Christian alt facts and so forth. Empty the pews is still out there as a hashtag. It hasn't trended for a long time, but it's regularly just used now as a marker of a Twitter community that is interested in exposing the toxicity of authoritarian churches and abuse that happens in Christian contexts and that sort of thing. And when I created that hashtag, I never meant for it to be anti-religious, but Mm -hmm. just, you know, to apply to as a direct protest to what I would call and did call at the time, you know, Trumpist churches or bigoted churches, right? I strongly advocate for pluralism, but I I came up with that hashtag as a way to throw in in the face of our right-wing churches that they are losing their youth and there's nothing they can do about it. And we're talking back. You know, we're talking after the election and recently there has been some viral videos of various evangelical pastors and evangelical Christians praying. And I think in general in the secular media, the extent of it is look at these crazies to a large extent. I'm wondering what you feel about that. Like, what's what's the right way to engage? Mm. Well, I think that mocking actually can be a valid response to authoritarianism, although sometimes, you know, particular forms of it make me cringe or are sort of ignorant. And, you know, and I'm, I'm not an anti-theist, even though I don't believe in God. I, I advocate against ignorant anti-theism. After all, religion is a huge umbrella category that encompasses a lot of different forms of religious practice. There are some religious traditions, Buddhism, Judaism, where you can be an atheist and a practitioner of the religion and Uh no one bats an eye. Uh Uh, So anti-theist atheists tend to say mocking things about sky daddies or sky fairies and reduce religion to just believing in impossible things. And no religion scholar defines religion that way. And it's extremely unhelpful if you want to build broad coalitions around shared values. And so in my view, believers and unbelievers need to be working together in support of democracy. And pluralism is an essential component of democracy. Right now, I think you don't see much discussion of pluralism outside the right. 
And just like with religious freedom, they completely distort what it's supposed to mean. And so I think it's important for us. And so I think it's important for us on the left to start talking about pluralism and religious freedom again and what they actually should mean as democratic principles. That was Chrissy Stroop, co-author and editor of Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church. You can also find her tweeting up a storm taking on the evangelical right. That's at C underscore Stroop. Bradley Onishi is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Skidmore College. Just like Andre and Chrissy, he used to be an evangelical, but he's not anymore. He's still in the religion game, though. He writes and researches about evangelicalism, and he closely tracks it on his podcast, Straight White American Jesus. I called him up to ask him about the popular right-wing intellectuals who preach tradition. You know who I'm talking about, the Jordan Petersons, the Ben Shapiros, the Charlie Kirks? I think it is on the rise, or at least if we take rise to mean its visibility and its vocality, then I think it is. Does that mean that it's on the rise in terms of the numbers and proportions of people who are adhering to those values? I'm not sure. I actually don't think so. Mm -hmm. And I think the next question is why? Why would there be a vocal minority talking about traditional values, trad wives, fundamentalisms are a thoroughly modern phenomenon. They arise in reaction to modernity sort of breaking open traditional structures of authority. And so when we arrive at a situation where you as an individual have the freedom or your own path, professionally, economically, romantically, socially, geographically, you might've grown up in Ohio, but you're gonna end up living in Boston. You might've grown up in Toronto, but you're gonna end up living in Vancouver. That kind of freedom is open to you. For some of us, it's wonderful, right? We say, great, grew up here, but I'm going to pursue a profession that takes me to Washington, D.C. I'm going to be romantically involved with somebody who isn't from the kinds of communities or neighborhoods or whatever that I grew up with, so on and so forth, okay? For others, however, that kind of freedom is thoroughly, thoroughly frightening. Mm -hmm. And one of the reactions is to turn to what they take to be the origins or fundamentals of a culture or a religious tradition and say, I'm going to hold on to this anchor as my way of understanding who I am in the world. And in order to make sense, of all of the swirling chaos that I take to be my culture, my politics, my existence. And so when I, when I see the rise of Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro, I always take it in the lens of the rise of religious fundamentalisms. Yeah. These are ways that people are telling a very simplified and reductive story about themselves and their world. Mm. They create an in-group, out-group. They reduce the world to us and them. They reduce the world to good and evil. And then they just sort of proceed along those strict binaries. What does it do for them? It provides a nice, stable orientation. What does it do to the rest of us? Well, it creates toxic political cultures, toxic religious cultures, toxic, in the case of Jordan Peterson, toxic masculinity. And so those figures on what we take to be the intellectual right, I always interpret them as part of the rise of fundamentalisms writ large. One of the things that I kind of chuckle at, and perhaps this is an unfair criticism, or perhaps it is, but it seems to me like they're not even that serious about it, though, because, you know, you talk about people that are celebrating Western intellectual culture. It's a very narrow 
way to look at things. But even if you accept that, like, what, are they reading Aristotle? Like, what's their favorite symphony? Like, what is it exactly that they are celebrating about this culture? And even on the, like, traditional masculinity and family value stuff, I mean, that stuff is tough in its own way, right? Like, a lot of these people are, like, are marginal figures. They don't take responsibility for, like, a family or a community. And again, I'm not saying that, that we should need to return to that, but there is a kind of expectation there, both at a, a familial and then at an intellectual level that I just don't see evidence of. Like, what is this fantasy of theirs? They don't seem to live up to it. You know, when I see these appeals to tradition or appeals to fundamentals, I take those as a, 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 a performance of collective memory. So for me, the difference mm -hmm. is collective memory is about erecting a vision of the past that is probably not accurate. It does probably not correspond to history, but you erect this fantastical vision of the past. Why? Not so you have it straight in your mind what actually happened, but so that you can then enact a particular vision of the present and a prospect for the future. Yes. So I'm going to go cherry pick certain values, certain communities and say traditional Western values. These are the traditional families. This is how you organize your community. And we've gotten away from that. And I'm here to say I'm the champion of, of whatever it is, manhood family, masculinity, faith, patriotism. And as you're saying, what ends up happening is not some sort of good faith exploration. What happens is I'm going to cherry pick certain parts of it so that I can enact the present and the future that I already had in mind when I, when I started the process. Yeah. Their masculinity is about owning the libs. Like that's, <laughs> so tell me a bit more about yourself. What's your journey to this? So I grew up in uh, in Southern California, biracial. My dad's a Japanese American from from Hawaii. My mom's a white woman from from Tennessee and Missouri. Largely non-religious household, but um, age fourteen was sort of going down that uh, cliche road of juvenile delinquency. You know, drug, sex, and rock and roll. And uh, you know, very junior high girlfriend invited me to church on a Wednesday, and I thought, well, this is a really good excuse to get out of the house on a Wednesday. Mom cannot say no to me going to church on a Wednesday. That is not a thing she can say no to. And this is just a great way to for me to see my girlfriend on a, on a Wednesday night, right? As soon as I walked in, it, it was not what I expected. It was a youth room full of arcade games and young leaders with tattoos and guitars. And uh, girlfriend dumped me pretty soon thereafter, but that youth group became my second home. And I committed myself wholeheartedly to evangelical Christianity at that time. In retrospect, it made a lot of sense. I was always a kid who was staring at the stars, wondering about the meaning of life, prone to depression, thinking about, uh, is life meaningless? And so evangelical Christianity provided answers to every question you would have ever had about existence in such neat and tidy ways. That all led me to the point where by the time I was 20, I was married and a full-time minister. Uh, so I was a full-time college student, full-time minister, and married by age 20, fully on the path, right, to being the uh, one of the the leaders of the next generation of uh, of conservative evangelicalism in the United States, or not, you know, I'm blowing that out of proportion. But by the time I finished college, intellectually and socially, evangelicalism just didn't make sense anymore. All of the questions, all of the searching led me to incoherency. It led me to prejudice, to an intellectual edifice that just collapsed. Mm. And so... I went on to get a, a couple of graduate degrees in philosophy and theology, and by that time, sort of just found myself as somebody who was continually fascinated by fundamental questions. 
and yet no longer able to exist in the white evangelical space. And so, as you said at the beginning there, I, I've stayed in the religion game. Uh, religion is something that is on my mind all day, every day, and yet uh, I'm no longer a part of the community as a practitioner. One of the fascinating things about what you just said there and what it seems to be a commonality, at least with the three people that I've talked to, Chrissy and, and Andre, and now yourself, is this sense of not being quite intellectually satisfied. And, and you just tweeted, I think it was today, as a convert, I gave my evangelicalism everything I had, but when I started questioning its borders, incoherencies and prejudices, I was the bad guy. There was no reflection on how to transform our movement. Andre basically said the same thing. There were inconsistencies within the Bible that he was, was raising from a good faith perspective that wasn't allowed. So that leads me to my question around like the relationship between kind of intellectualism and the church and the intellectualism of the church. That strikes me as, as pretty anti-intellectual. It's exactly right. Now, I don't want to talk about Christianity writ large. There are many places within Christian communities where that kind of questioning is welcomed. But in, in evangelicalism in particular, anti-intellectualism is a feature. It's not a bug. It's celebrated. And you will hear over and over again that if you do too much studying and too much reading, you're going to lose your faith. And that's true. <laughs> um, that is true in my case. When I was a 22-year-old, I spent every waking moment I had reading the history of Christianity, philosophy, sociology, theology. And you really arrive at these points where a literal interpretation of the Bible just doesn't seem possible. Like we just can't proceed along these hermeneutic lines. It's just not tenable. There seems to be forces informing our faith tradition that are not part of uh, the gospel, right? So the Republican values and the Republican platform seems to be more important to us than actually what Jesus taught about the poor or the marginalized or the sick or the hungry. And when you raise those questions, you get looked at like, hey, stop creating trouble. Come on, stop. Like, just this is not helping. We'd like it if you could sort of just keep this stuff to yourself or really just not, not go down these pathways. Please don't enact this kind of uh, inquiry with the young people. That's the last thing we need, right? One of the turning moments for me was wondering if I should vote for George W. Bush or John Kerry. And I had really thought, I think John Kerry's agenda represents Jesus' teachings in some sense, at least. And when I raised this to my elders, they looked at me and said, look, you do whatever you want. You may be right that John Kerry's programs may help some people who are in need of shelter or food. That might be true. I don't know. Here's what I can tell you. It's pro-choice. So if you vote for him, you're going to be implicated in the, in the murder of millions of babies. So if you can live with that, go ahead, vote for him. If you can't, then I think we should just stop right here. You know what you need to do, just like the rest of us know what we need to do. No need to talk about this anymore. To me, that's a great example of how this works. It's one of the moments I'll never forget that sort of led me out of the movement. And what does that look like leaving? That's not easy, right? That's your community. Every aspect of your identity is subsumed within that community. It's very hard to leave because all of the resources you have for telling a story about yourself have been hijacked by the movement. And so if you try to leave, how are you going to do that? Who are the friends? Who are the family that are going to offer that kind of uh, way out? You've probably ostracized those friends and family as bad influences on you. What are the educational resources you're going to look to? You have created a reality where you're sheltered from all other outside forces that sort of uh, don't cohere with your religious worldview. 
who are the communities that are going to help you? All of your friends, all of your contacts, all of those who care about you, who bring you chicken soup when you're sick, who show up when your family has a, a, a health scare, they're all from the church. What has been true for a long time is that when you decide to leave, you are out in the wilderness alone. And I think this is why people like Chrissy and Andre and myself are all invested in the work of creating communities online and offline that are helping folks who are leaving feel like you're not alone. There's resources here for you. There's a way for you to understand what happened. There are people that want to hear your story, people with similar stories. My podcast is, I want to provide you all of the intellectual foundations you need to understand how you got here. The history, the sociology, the politics. And right, if you take all of those things together, hopefully we're providing folks with uh, a little bit better tools than we had when we went through it. I myself was, I was in England in grad school. During my time at Oxford, I lost my faith and I, I got divorced. So the way I put it is I lost both my ones at the same time, right? Mm. You, you find the one when you get married, your soulmate, and God is supposed to be the one. Well, I was 6,000 miles from home, lost both my ones and just had to figure it out. And it was hard. It hurt. How does your experience in the church help you and inform you as both a scholar and podcaster? One of the things I always want to bring to my work and, and my audience is a sense of empathy. Now, hear me out on this. It doesn't mean that I don't criticize, and I do. If you listen to anything I do or anything I write, I, in an unflinching way, criticize the racism, the xenophobia, the homophobia of the religious right of uh, many conservative uh, religious communities in uh, North America. But as a former insider, I feel like I can help folks think themselves into why you might find yourself in one of these religious traditions or communities. It doesn't start out with usually, now for some it does, but usually it doesn't start out with, you know, I really, really hate this group of people, or I really just want to ramp up my xenophobia. How can I do that? Oh, I'll become an evangelical. It's not like I did, right? I, I'm looking for answers to the questions of, of my existence. Why am I here? What's the point of my life? Who are the people that can provide me unconditional love? What is a story I can tell about myself and the universe? What are ways that I can root myself in a set of practices that will help me be healthy and balanced and cared for? It leads many of us into communities that offer that kind of constant inclusion, constant participation, constant camaraderie, collective effervescence. And so I always want to do two things at once. I want to help people gain that empathy for the individuals in these movements. And then I want to give them the tools to critique them as institutions and as political movements. I want, the, I want to say, we're not going to pull punches. The racism, the xenophobia, the homophobia, the misogyny, we're going to call it out. We're going to deconstruct it, dissect it, and then we're going to battle it at every front. But we're not going to demonize everyone in the movement. We're going to criticize institutions and try to understand individuals. I just love that that spirit. It's it's something I, I bring to my own work, to to the podcast that I'm hosting and, and the ones before it as well. It's, you know, the last couple episodes have looked a lot at populism and anti-populism and the white working class and and how it's gone for Trump. And I think there's a tendency to see them as irredeemable because they, in fact, are racist. I mean, they're supporting a racist, but that's not the way to win them over, right? I mean, that's my take on that community. And I think I'm hearing a similar take 
on the religious fundamentalist community from you. But I guess my question, my challenge is, can you in fact win them over? What evidence is there that they're being won over? Well, a couple thoughts on this. I think on a political level, the goal should be to out-organize, to out-recruit, and to be more politically savvy and strategic and win. Now, in terms of winning people over, there's a couple of, I think, things to keep in mind. In the United States, at least, the share of young people in these communities is declining. Does that mean people are being won over? I'm not sure. I do think it means that LGBTQ plus people in media, film, literature, television, the widespread discussions of systematic racism, the acknowledgement of systematic racism by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on the stage a couple uh, when they were uh, announced the winners of the of the uh, United States presidential election. Those kinds of things seep into the consciousness of the young evangelical, the young fundamentalist, and they have to decide, am I going to keep going on this path? And many of them are saying no. Hmm. I think the other thing is that these religious fundamentalist communities are aging. They're just older. And many of them are sort of seeing their share as a proportion of the population shrink over time. It often doesn't feel like it because they vote in such high numbers. So Robert Jones, the, the CEO of PRRI and author of White Too Long, always says, white evangelicals in the United States are probably like 15% of the, the population. But in terms of voting power, they're like 25% because they all vote, right? And so, you know, we can we, if we dig into the numbers, I'm not sure if that means winning them over, but I do think that there's ways we can understand them as losing some of this, these culture wars as time goes on. Mm. The, the other thing I'll say about winning people over is just, it's not going to happen on Twitter or Facebook. And I know from experience, you can get into arguments, you can try to outreason people, but as we just talked about with history and collective memory, it's not about facts. It's not about coherency. It's about just having post facto justifications for your belief. My encouragement is if you have people in your life who have been seduced by fundamentalism, by QAnon, by Trumpism, look for those places where they're admitting the, they're not sure that they can get on board kind of hatred, this kind of toxic attacks on certain groups. Look for the places where they say, you know, I think this went too far, or I'm not sure that that's good. And there's your conversation starter. And ask questions first. Why does this appeal to you? Why does this part seem like it, it doesn't appeal to you? What does that mean for your understanding of, of your support for, for Trump or for this religious movement, so on and so forth? So ex post facto justifications. I mean, we talked a little bit about Ben Shapiro and there's Charlie Kirk, Jordan Peterson, Eric Metaxas. There's this kind of traditionalist intellectual milieu that's like formed itself and is pretty, pretty influential right now. Can you describe some of those folks and what are their arguments and what do they actually believe? I'm struck by uh, an article from the New York Times uh, with Matthew Sheffield. And Matthew Sheffield started some of the first conservative websites in the early 2000s. And has since sort of had a, a transformation or convert from conservative media uh, and so on and so forth. And in the Times article, the interviewer asks him, what are some of the most important things about right-wing media that people don't understand? And here's his answer. Almost all right-wing support in the United States comes from a view that Christians are under attack by secular liberals. This point is so important and so little understood. Logic doesn't matter. Fact-checking doesn't matter. What matters is if I can use this information to show that liberals are evil, 
Many of them are not interested in reporting the world as it is, but rather to shape the world like they want it to be. If I take that perspective and apply it to someone like Eric Metaxas, I think things make a lot of sense. So Eric Metaxas is a media figure, a radio host, and an author, and is held up by both conservative uh, Republicans in the United States and uh, white evangelicals in the United States as an incredibly important figure. They look to him as one of the intellectual giants of their movement, okay? So let's just take Eric Metaxas for a second. Eric Metaxas wrote a book a couple of years ago on the uh, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was is, is famous for resisting uh, Nazism, going against the tides of many of his Christian brethren at the time, and doing everything he could to counter the Nazi movement, even to the point of actually at one point planning to assassinate Hitler, okay? Metaxas writes this book about Bonhoeffer, and it he really makes Bonhoeffer into what looks like someone that evangelicals, white evangelicals can get on board with, right? Someone that that looks like them. He's made in their image in some sense. They love it. The book is widely, wildly popular and it is read in book clubs and Bible studies across North America. I mean, people go crazy for this Metaxas book on Diedrich Bonhoeffer. If you read the reviews by academics and scholars, they point to the inaccuracies, They point to just the basic grammatical and stylistic errors. They point to the fact that Metaxas had basically ignored really crucial parts of Bonhoeffer's writings and uh, political views. And so what happens here is from a scholarly perspective, there's no way that I as a professor would ever use that Metaxas book in anywhere near my students. But if you approach the conservative Bible study If you approach the men's group who has just read the Eric Metaxas book and say, hey, look, guys, sorry about this, but historically, textually, this just doesn't add up. This book is really full of errors and it's really full of false information. You probably shouldn't be using it. You know what they're going to say to you? You're just another liberal attacking us. You're just another person who is out to take down Christianity, traditional values and faith, and you need to get out of here. What someone like Eric Metaxas does for that movement is provides an intellectual cover, what we would probably call a pseudo-intellectual cover to everything that we've talked about, family, faith, traditional values, whatever it is you want to smuggle under that umbrella. I've been there, right? I I have been this person. 19-year-old me would look for any sort of credible scholarly work that supported intelligent design as my way of justifying my belief in intelligent design rather than the theory of evolution. I would hold on to any sort of conservative uh, scholarly works, right, that justified my literal interpretation of the Bible. And if you can find these intellectual heroes that provide enough credibility for your movement, who cares what those liberal professors say about the quality of the work? Who cares what the, the New York Times has to say about whether or not it actually engaged the uh, you know, contemporary scholarship in German on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who cares? We don't care about that. This guy, Eric Metaxas, is super smart, credible. He's a New York Times bestseller. And so we trust him. And if you want to bring anything up with me about, about this issue, I'm going to point you to that authority and I'm good. I'm not, I don't need to listen to you. I don't need to consider your viewpoint. Well, this happens over and over again, whether that's Ben Shapiro talking about a traditional family structure, whether that's Jordan Peterson talking about masculinity, whether that's Charlie Kirk talking about uh, Trump and Trumpism. These guys from the outside look like pseudo-intellectuals whose approaches are shot with methodological problems 
and shortcomings. But from within the movement, they provide intellectual cover. And as long as you have that authoritative cover, you have an excuse not to consider the viewpoints of those liberal, secular, godless socialists who are trying to tear down your faith. And so this is how these echo chambers work. It's why people like Charlie Kirk and, and Eric Metaxas get elevated to these places of having massive platforms, millions of followers, podcasts that are ranked in the top 10 and on Apple's charts, best-selling books, so on and so forth, because they they play that role. And that role is direly needed for this movement. I think that's so interesting, that um, paradox there, in the sense where we, we're talking about anti-intellectualism, not asking the right kind of questions, but you take someone like Ben Shapiro and the whole artifice, it's all um, a cultural kind of uh, signifier of intelligence, right? Like facts don't care about your feelings. I, I talk really fast and I have really good arguments. And like, there's a commitment to seeming like an intellectual on the one hand, while on the other hand, you, you dismiss it. So I guess I'm, I'm just curious as to why they even care. Like, why do they need this kind of intellectual cover? Like, why not just have faith to say, you know, fuck it. We believe in this. There are definitely those out there, right? There are definitely those out there who would say, all I need is the Bible. All I need is my sermons on Sunday. All I need are the preachers who provide me biblical teaching, right? But there's also within these movements, you know, those who um, want a post facto justification for their, their beliefs and practices. And so the anti-intellectualism, we need to clarify that. The anti-intellectualism is an anti-intellectualism of outside forces mm that may in some way undermine uh, what we take to be our worldview. If we can find intellectual forces that support that worldview, all of a sudden we're all for intellectualism. All of a sudden we're all for reading books at book club. All of a sudden we're all for these, what we take to be complex arguments about Western civilization because they're providing, again, that justification. So the anti-intellectualism should be clarified as an yeah. anti-external authoritative intellectualism that might have the gall to poke a hole in your worldview. This is where Trumpism comes in. If it's coming from somebody who's not on your team, mm -hmm. the argument doesn't matter. They're not on your team. So of course they're against you. If it's coming from someone who is on your team, then the argument is welcomed. It's going to be turned to, referenced as something we can use, something that helps us. And that's how we'll proceed. It really is about, are you with us or against us? And if you're with us, we'll use your argument and your intellectualism as a tool. If not, we're just going to label mm -hmm. you a demonic, godless, socialist, uh, devil worshiper <laughs> and move on with our lives. That was Bradley Onishi. You can find him on the podcast Straight White American Jesus. He co-hosts it with Dan Miller. They are two religious studies professors who take a deep dive into the far Christian fundamentalist right. Find that and all of our guests' work on our show page. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. We're produced by Jay Coburn. The lead researcher on this episode was Isabel Lemelin, with support from David Mosscrop and consulting from Professor Andre Gagne. Our composer is Mike Barber, and our graphic designer is Dakota Coop. And I'm your host, Gordon Caddick. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. We're up on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. If you like what we do, you can also support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. You'll find bonus and early content on Patreon. Don't like what I said? Well, tweet at me. 
The handle is at Gordon Caddick, or you can email the show. We receive funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, and our lead academic advisor is Professor Alan Sens at the University of British Columbia. We're also supported by a wider project looking at the rise of far-right political ideologies. That project is run by Professors Andre Gagné, Ronald Beener, and A. James McAdams. Darts and Letters is made in two places, Toronto, Ontario, and Vancouver, British Columbia. Toronto is on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Vancouver is on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. This is a production of Cited Media. We make other fine shows like Cited Podcast and Crackdown. You can find both of those and others wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you.